Hi, welcome to Sustain Talks. I'm Sam Candy, CEO of Responsible Futures, an organisation that guides, inspires and educates people and businesses to become more sustainable and socially responsible through consulting, training and educational webinars. But today I'm joined by Chris Desai. Chris is a global director at UOcean and UEarth 2050. He is founder at the VAU Foundation and CEO at VAU. Chris is a conservationist, philanthropist, captain, diver and pilot. So much. One of his missions is to remove one billion kilos of river and ocean plastics. I've been following Chris for a while now and I cannot wait to hear about the work that you're doing, Chris. Welcome. I'm really excited about this. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Sam, for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's good to have you here. Right, let's start. I mean, that was an introduction. You do so much, but I want to hear a bit more about the Veo Foundation, You Ocean and You Earth, and really about your journey and what inspired you to start. No, thank you. I mean, I think I think you hyped me off on that intro a bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and uh match up to that kind of level, or I might sadly disappoint uh, the audience. I'm I am very basic in a lot of aspects. Um, sure. I mean, my journey, you know, I mean, similar similar to your own was, you know, didn't start off in sustainability, didn't start off, you know, in the sector sectors of conservation or things like that. You know, I was born in the in the heart, heart of rural England. I was born in Leicester, you know, the furthest county away from the ocean than you can get in the UK, right? You know, so people always wonder that. They're like, okay, you're from Leicester, you're based in Leicester, but yet you're an ocean conservation charity. I mean, you know, the, the paradox right there. But yeah, my my beginning um, was was very humble in, in a lot of aspects. You know, my dad was a refugee. Um, he came to the country like by gunpoint. Um, he got told to leave his country in 24 hours. Um, so my upbringing was very, very, you know, up and down. Uh, fortunately, I was born in the UK, um, but my dad's from Africa. And I think, you know, being born in this country, you see how beautiful it is, you know, and the stability that the country has in that respect. And it's one of those things that conservation was never on my horizon. I think conservation has always been a very secluded uh, you know, sector to the few privileged, you know, it's kind of like people do conservation when they've made lots of money and they want to give back, you know, to, to the community or whatever it may be, you know, pray to the gods of redemption, right, for their impact throughout their lives. Um, so I'm no billionaire or millionaire here, just just me. But yeah, I, I grew up loving nature. I grew up in fields. My mum would take me to any bit of water that she could, you know, get her hands on, uh, whether it was the coast in Norfolk, in, you know, Brancaster to, to somewhere down, you know, in, in Cornwall, like we would go once every couple of years. And as soon as I was around the water, I was a different person. I was that kid that was trying to swim before I could even swim, right? You know, diving into things and couldn't get myself out of. Um, and, you know, from a young age, I had this respect, this awe for conservation and, and for the world, you know, and the natural world. But my life did not necessarily add up to that. You know, I ended up going into music and fashion um, in central London for 10 years. You know, I was an art director of a big fashion firm. 
And it was through that experience of traveling around the world, going to India, going to Bangladesh, going to Africa, Turkey, Europe, and seeing the damage that the fashion industry was causing to the world. And then I realized everyone is so quick to hop on the bandwagon to slay oil and gas, right? Oil and gas are the devil, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, you know, over 80, 90% of the world still uses oil and gas to survive, right? It, it provides, you know, even speaking on this phone call, this, this Zoom call, right? It's a product of the oil and gas industry, the energy, you know, from the laptop to the satellites, all these things. But fast fashion, my entire career was based upon a concept that is massively un un unsustainable and also does not have the bearings in life, you know, that actually kind of you know what does fast fashion add to society we buy 10 t-shirts and throw them away a week later I mean it's I kind of felt that I was being a hypocrite and I think that's one of the hardest things and it's in it's a point in a lot of people's lives where they never get to they never look at themselves in the mirror and just say you know I'm a hypocrite everything I love everything I believe everything I want to protect my entire industry my entire career is built around damaging it right and that was it so for me I uh, being in the fashion industry opened my eyes to pollution seeing inks going into rivers seeing you know the plastic pollution the microplastics and the effluent systems like all of these kind of things and I thought to myself you know what I, I, I woke up one morning 10 years into this career I'll top of my industry climb the the ladder you know of corporate London and from the outsides they, it was a huge success you know everyone around me was like oh my gosh you know you're a successful person. And it was further from the truth. I was massively unhappy, not successful, I don't believe, as a person, you know, and I was being judged by completely the wrong metrics. You know, is success not both based actually on how many lives we touch, how much impact we can have on our planet, not just industry recognition and all these kind of things. And that was it. I I, I left. Um, I took six months out and kind of tried to refigure my life, you know, midlife crisis before I hit midlife. Um, and, you know, I spent six months on a boat, on a yacht, right? And this isn't, I don't mean a nice yacht. This was a rickety old, you know, sailing yacht, freezing in a sleeping bag. You know, it, was, it sounds great, but it wasn't, you know. But I spent six months sailing with a group of people around the UK. And during this trip where I was just reevaluating my life, and actually trying to find myself, trying to find, you know, actually what is my purpose? I know I love fashion. I think fashion is a great thing because I think fashion allows the expression of, of the, the soul, of the body, you know, your, your message and how you dress, how you are perceived is, is a great thing. I think it empowers people, you know, and I thought to myself, how could I be a positive influence in the world, but still be involved in this industry? Um, and that's when I came up with the idea of Vayu. Um, and I created a brand, an organic sustainable brand um, called Vayu, which is organic fabrics. Um, we thought about the biodegradable bags, the carbon footprint, the diaffluent systems, the sun filtration pits, wind and solar powered factories. You know, I really started to try and think, you know what, these daily actions are going to have a huge impact. Um, I started the brand, you know, as an entrepreneur kind of thing. And yeah, it was a lot harder than I possibly thought. Um, and about six months, eight months into this journey, I looked around and went, what am I doing with my life? All my stability had gone. I had literally gone back to that exact point 
of what my dad had always said, you know, secure yourself, secure yourself. And now I'm sitting there, literally all the money invested, broke, no sales, no orders. And I've just gone, what have I done? Like, what have I done? So to try and help the planet or try to be more sustainable, I've sacrificed my own comforts, right? And that's the biggest thing that I was battling with. But I thought to myself, let me carry on. Let me, you know, I'm I'm set on this. I'm, you know, whether it doesn't work, whether it works, I'm still going to stay true to myself now. Um, and thank God, you know, touch wood, we ended up landing a big contract with the retail stores. Um, and Vayu went into about 633 shops. So from selling maybe one or two garments a week, you know, to 600 shops. We just, we shot through the UK. I think we became the second most ethical fashion brand in the UK uh, by the Good Shopping Guide. And then I thought to myself, do you know what? I had that recollection of point again where I went, okay, I'm doing something good and sustainable, but actually I'm still not doing anything to help the planet. You know, it was like I had phase one of let me change my life try to do something more sustainable. And then I went, oh my gosh, I'm still actually not repairing the planet. I've just fallen back into the trap, you know? So I thought to myself, you know, what can I do? How can I, you know, redeem myself, right? Um, so I looked for a charity to give some money to. That was actually my first point of call. I said, let me find a charity that would help save the oceans, that would remove plastics, that would do all of these things. And that's it. I went searching. I searched up and down the UK. Um, I went up to Leicester, you know, my hometown and tried to find it. And I was very specific. I wanted a charity that would remove river plastics and ocean plastics. And I wanted a charity that would also represent my community where I grew up, all these kind of people, you know, ethnic minorities, low income housing, all of the kind of people that don't have access to these conservation opportunities. And I realized that there was nobody not one single charity in the UK was doing this. And I just had that reflection moment and said, do you know what, I, I'm, I need to do this. And I set my own charity up. So I set up the Value Foundation. Um, don't ask me if I'll do it again. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been a roller coaster beyond words. Um, and yeah, from that, we came out with a project eight months in, you know, it was kind of form, form, forming what it would look like. And I came up with the idea, you ocean. Um, it would be, you know, you and the ocean in that respect. And from that, we put all our resources together. I've got this, this little bit of money, put it into the charity. And I went, okay, let's do this. Went to launch a project, March, 2020. That's amazing. What a journey. Amazing, but not because that was the month that COVID hit. Oh God, of course. <laughs> and everything went to a standstill and the team sat down and just went you've done eight months of planning of this you've gone through hell and back to make this happen and then the lockdown happened and I sat there and went oh my gosh what have I done like all my chips are on the table all my cards are in once again in that very very vulnerable position like you know choosing between you know do we get baked beans from Lidl or do you baked beans from like Sainsbury's that was a you know that 60 pence mark I'm not even joking it was a, a hard choice like I had all chips on the table anyone that knows me knows I go hard 
I don't do half measures, all or nothing, completely broke or billionaire. Like there are my two options. I've always given myself that in life, right? I'll be happy with either one. So I said to my team, I said, look, just give it a week. I really need to think this through. And everyone around me, and I mean it, everyone around me was telling me, you tried it, it's not going to work. This is going to go on for years. Just, you best just focus on the company, do this, this and this. And I just couldn't, I could not, I'd put so much energy and passion into this, being at sea, being on the river, speaking to the communities, I felt obliged, I felt, you know, that I need to change the face of conservation, I need to decolonize conservation, you know, taking it from from these privileged few and sharing it out to the world, because how can we live in an equitable society, how can we all care about the planet when there's only a select amount of people that have access to it? So that was it. Within about a week, we got um, a message, you know, onto all I did it on the TV said, you're allowed out your house one hour a day. And the light bulb moment came on for me. And I just said, if people are going to go out of their house for an hour a day, the first thing they'll do is go to the park, go to a local area, give it a week, they'll be bored. They will, you know, human nature, I've been to this park before. I've been to that thing before. And I said to myself, why don't I send them anyone that wants it? I'll send them out a litter picker, a vest and a weighing machine. And we will start collecting plastics out of every river, every beach, every local area that's around a water body. And let's see what happens. I went out on the first cleanup and I made sure that I did it. Right, I went out on my own because it was law at that point. Right. And I took a bag and I took, you know, um, a litter picker and I put the list picker into the water and it was covered in plastics, right? This is in, in the UK, this is in Hertfordshire at the time. And I started pulling plastics out and there was this old lady that had one of those, you know, the trolley bags that they pull behind them, right? Yeah. Bless her. Um, and she kept looking at me. She was in, you know, distance away doing the social distancing. And um, she kept looking at me, then looking away, looking at me, looking away. And I didn't, I, I was wearing, you know, a hooded top and I think, you know, some shorts and some trainers, you know, you know, like lockdown attire, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like how we all dressed you know didn't care um and anyway as she got closer and closer she came to about you know three meters away and then she looked at me and I looked at her and I just smiled you know one of those and she said some words to me that changed my life and it was probably one of the pinnacle moments in my in the journey of Ocean that made me it set me on fire and what she said to me, and it's a real double-edged sword here, right? And it is a bit controversial, but you can take what you want from this. She looked at me and said, don't worry, lad, your community service will be over soon. That was the words that she said to me, right? And I looked at her and I just smiled back. I didn't didn't say anything. Just I just smiled back and went, thanks. And then she walked off, as in like smiling, right? And you know, apart from being deeply offended in a lot of ways, I started to ask those questions. Why, why would I be classed as someone doing community service? Is it because I'm a young person? Is it because I'm young and mixed race? Is it because I'm an ethnic minority? Is it how I'm dressed? Is it the fact that it's an activity that's not seen to be normal, right? Unless it's being forced for my generation. Why did she say, good luck, your community service will be over soon? And, you know, I don't know in what way that she meant it, because she was smiling and she walked off. She seemed generally quite happy, you know. 
and it it stuck with me for you know for weeks and you know and i went i'm going to change this why is it not normal to see young people doing conservation why is it not normal to see a young person picking litter why is it not normal to see a young ethnic minority picking litter that was one of my biggest driving factors and that spurred me on and i said if she's thinking this is forced whether it was about age whether it was about race whether it was about socio you know economic reasons who knows what it was maybe it's because i was dressed in my shorts my head top right <laughs> you know and i didn't have a haircut who knows but it changed everything it changed everything and i set myself on a mission that you know what i will normalize it you can see a big group of asian people or black people or mixed ethnicities from any culture council estates white people individual anyone right doing conservation and it be a normal thing no one thinks it's forced no one thinks it's something that we don't do and it just set me on fire for it and you know one became two Two became four, four became 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 500, 500 to 2,000, 2,000 to 4,000. And before we know it, three and a half years in, the six and a half thousand of us now doing this across 18 sites in the UK, 15 sites internationally. We've got 33 U Ocean chapters. Um, we've removed over 350,000 kilos of plastic by hand. Um, and now we're going into the stage where we're putting up global river barriers. So we're putting barriers across rivers to stop plastics before they reach the ocean. Um, and, you know, we've got a team out in Indonesia now where we're actually employing isolated communities that used to be fishermen. And we're actually paying them to remove plastics from beaches, plastics from the rivers and turning these communities into conservationists where they can be paid for actually helping to save the planet. And you ocean since then has then gone from strength to strength um, and that we are changing the face of conservation that now, you know, in these cities that we're working when there's 150 people from all races, all ages, all generations working together, you know, from the church to the mosque, the mosque to the temple, the temple to the Gurdwara, the Gurdwara to the synagogue, you know, whether it's religious, whether it's cultural, whether it's, you know, a council estate working with people from rural countrysides, you know, the social cohesion in our chapters is phenomenal. And people, a lot of the times, don't get it. I mean, you know, and we still get it. You know, I've had people that have came off a boat, you know, on a river, walk over and call the police on us. We've had the police called on us for doing a cleanup. And then they've asked me, you know, I bet you've not got permission here. And I'm like, speak to the head of parks. I mean, he knows me by name. We have coffee together. Like he, he's he's asking me to do this. Like we're, we're working with the councils. We're working with the river trusts. Like, and it's still, you know, people find it hard to believe that, you know, young people, that ethnic minorities, that people from lower income uh, housing estates can actually become conservationists, can actually look after the rivers and the oceans and, and the land around the UK and the world. And we really are changing the face of conservation. We're the fastest growing organization now in the UK. Wow. What a story. <laughs> what a story. There's so many parts of that that I relate to, especially about your journey and your, you know, worked my whole life in corporate and then wanted to do more and just needed to find my purpose. So I, I totally, totally get you there. But to say you've gone above and beyond is just unbelievable. And it's really interesting. I listened to, you know, um, what that woman said to you. And 
whilst I know it's offensive, I think that your community service is never going to be over because <laughs> you are serving the community in everything that you're doing. And <laughs> it's just like, you know, you, you just achieved so much at the time and it's funny when you said March 2020 I was like all right yeah I've just completely forgotten that was that was the moment that COVID hit and outdoors shut but um what an inspiring inspiring journey I um I want to go a bit more into that plastics in the ocean I've um I think everyone's seen the tortoise with the full cup its nose and wrapped in um a, a holder and you know we've seen those moving pictures um that may have opened our eyes to the issue with plastic but can you paint us it's hard to imagine the magnitude of plastic in the ocean can you paint a visual of what that is and and share it a hundred percent i mean ocean plastics river plastics aren't just you know unattractive it's not like oh there's a polluted river it's the detrimental effect effects that it has on these ecosystems you know we're talking from macroplastics or microplastics microplastics are the plastics that you can't see um you know a little known fact and this this dives into the systemic problems that we have even in the uk you know the average person you know that washes their gym clothes in a washing machine right you think i wash my clothes that's it it comes out clean smells good you know done the job seven million particles of plastics are released every wash on average so then you put seven million plastic particles into the british waterway systems by just washing your clothes right that's crazy people don't understand then the impacts that microplastics have until recently where they've now found microplastics in the placentas of pregnant women they're finding microplastics in breast milk they're finding microplastics in your brain two hours after eating from a plastic container two hours it takes to go from your mouth to your brain they've actually got the pictures of microplastics in a human brain right it is crazy. It's so new that we don't understand the effects of what that's having on human health. But I'm sure you can work out microplastics in your in your bloodstream and your organs isn't a good thing. You know, on average, it's about 2.2 grams of plastic the average person eats a week. That's your credit card. So imagine your credit card, you're eating that a week in the UK. That's all right. right. Yeah. And that's from breathing the air. That's from eating your food. They find microplastics in food containers actually growing in uh, in the food itself, where they've used fertilizers and plastic and scum from the water companies. They actually plastics in the food, in the food chain, in the packaging, in the air, in the water, you know, from your carpets to your car. We are breathing in plastics constantly. And it's now coming to light, wow, in animals when they're they're, they're looking at them, you know, with plastics in animals what's happening to them is it causing disease is it causing you know affecting your hormonal systems is it affecting fertility all of these kind of things then going into that's just in human health forget the ocean forget anything else right now that's human health by the time it hits the ocean you have all seen the pictures of you know turtles with straws up their nose things like that it does happen it's not 
it's not you know it's it's not as it is bad but it's not as widespread as people imagine in that respect like there's far more greater dangers and microplastics are one of these right they found microplastics now in 100 percent of mussels tested around the world 100 percent because mussels are like filter feeders right so they suck in the plastics so now you'll find it in fish you'll find it in mussels so every piece of fish you eat they take plastics out of it, out of big pieces of plastic. They'll take it out of the stomach first, right? Before you get your fillet. And then in the fillet itself, we'll have microplastics in its flesh. So we have now broken down these big pieces of plastic into smaller pieces, into microplastics, whether it's straight from the washing machine or from countries, you know, in the UK, we litter about 19 million pieces of plastic into our waterways every year. 19 million pieces. You know, when you go to other countries like we work out, we just opened up Eurasian Malawi uh, a few months ago. We've got Eurasian Indonesia. And then you go to countries that have poor waste management systems. So it's so easy from us in the West to sit there going, you know what? These countries like India and Africa and China should stop putting stuff in the sea. Right. And I hear it all the time. I hear it in the conservation world. I hear it in the corporate world. And I always say to people, unless you've walked a mile in someone's shoes, you cannot understand their life. When I went out to Africa, when I went out to India, when I went out to Indonesia, you go to these islands, say, for instance, in Indonesia, there's no binde. <laughs> it's as simple as that. There is no binde. So Sam, imagine for a minute, every Tuesday in the in the UK or wherever, right, they come and pick your rubbish up. My imagine, my right? Yeah. Imagine a day where there is none. Imagine a week, a month, six months time. Sam, you're putting the rubbish bags outside your house for six months. Your rubbish bags would be higher than your house, right? Yeah. But you have no bin day. So then what is the next best thing? You burn it or you throw it into a river because the river just takes it away, right? It's like a moving conveyor belt. Great system. And then this this is the, the, the facts. And these are the situations people in rural Africa, rural India, are finding every single day it's not like they're actively going i'm gonna go pollute the ocean today mm. it's the fact that there's not enough infrastructure we all know even the recycling system is completely broken nine percent of all plastics in the world are recycled only nine percent and then even when you say recycled look at what counts as recycling because then they burn the plastic in power stations and they class it as recovering the energy so we're burning plastics we're recycling only 9%. So where, where is the 91% of our plastic going? Landfill or the ocean? That's it. So that's why we have a pandemic on our hands of plastic pollution. And it's breaking down, it's poisoning the ecosystems. You know, the University of China managed to prove that microplastics stop plankton from reproducing. If plankton stops reproducing, it breaks the carbon cycle that plankton's not producing the oxygen it's not being eaten by animals coke pods all these things and the carbon cycle is continuing right the ocean is one of the largest carbon sinks in the world but we are polluting it and now they say the ocean is full it can't absorb any more heat can't absorb any more carbon and the fact is it's because we're breaking down ecosystems and the biodiversity Everyone has this carbon tunnel vision, and I am very vocal on this subject. Look at carbon. Carbon itself, for instance, is the life source of all plants and things like that. 
look at carbon, how much we pollute, how much the actual atmosphere can, it can take, how much the ocean can take. You know, there's this big statistic that came out talking about human involvement in, in climate change, right? And obviously humans are having an effect on climate change. I think we're, uh, I, don't, I don't know, people still disagree, but I can, you know, there's a lot of science to say that it is affecting, right? But the problem is, is that we're breaking down systems that sequester carbon. We're breaking down the biodiversity. We're poisoning our lands with pesticides. We're putting loads of fertilizers on it. We're causing algae blooms in the rivers and bays. We've got 400 dead zones in the world now. A dead zone is where life just does not survive in the ocean. 400 of them globally, right? The fact is all of these, this pollution is breaking down these vital ecosystems that help sequester carbon. But yet we're, we're hell bent on saying we need to go electric, we need to do this. You know, they've proven you can only replace just a little over 50% of all the vehicles in the world with electric vehicles, right? With the amount of materials that's available to us. So by going fully electric, yeah, you are going to solve local pollution and things like that. But then what are you going to cause on a social level? What are you going to cause on an economic value? You know, look at all of the factors. And that's what UOcean stands for, is looking at the bigger picture. I'm not drawn into these climate debates a lot of the time, right? Because solving carbon is not going to be our saving grace. Stopping the planet from warming that 1.5 degrees is not going to be our saving grace. Because the problem is that we are killing our biodiversity and our ecosystems. So when biodiversity breaks down and when we stop that entire cycle carbon will be the last problem that we have to worry about that actually if our systems were in optimal states they would be sequestering more carbon they would actually be you know managing the planet's ecosystem more efficiently but everyone is hell-bent with this carbon tunnel vision on you know this is bad that is bad you should stop this and it's like you know Let's all go buy, you know, an electric car. That, unfortunately, that is not enough. We need to change our habits as, as, as a human race. We need to make conservation accessible and a part of daily life for everyone. We've lost our forests. We've, we're losing our fish stocks. We're losing species. You know, 15% of UK priority species are now on the face of extinction. You know, only 13% of the UK has woodland. You know, compared to Europe, we're, you know, well behind. So the fact is, we're, we, we've got all of these issues and people aren't addressing them with that. They're just prioritising one single agenda. Yeah, I think I've seen that carbon tunnel vision before. And actually, we speak about it in our training course that we do. And I think it's a bit of everything. I think that as a society, we have become come to a point where we're just over consuming things yep. that we don't need and that's everything from fossil fuels to plastics to food to makeup and um clothes and fast fashion and uh, you know it i really think we've just it's almost been like an ease to get things that we don't need and the price of those things is so low and it it needs to be everything but you paint such an interesting picture um i mean even just listening to that there are so many things that i picked up that i just didn't know about i can't believe i'm eating a credit card a week um that's really scary and i don't think i'm going to eat muscles again either but <laughs> but um like on 
in, in the work that you have done here, um, amazing, amazing work, what has been the most unexpected challenge that you have faced on your way to leading these initiatives? I think for us, the most unexpected challenge is actually a bit kind of what we were speaking about just before the call. You know, the fact that when I, I started something good, right? And I would say I did a good thing. That is like, you know, I I said earlier, I'm I'm going to set the bar probably really, you set it quite high. I'm going to drop the bar here. I just thought to myself, I need to do a good thing and I need to do the right thing. And I thought in my head, because humanity, I believe is predominantly good. I think people are inherently good. You do have bad in the world, but I think if you give people the right opportunities, then people will choose to do the right thing a lot of the times. I think one of the biggest challenges is we face is is buy-in from corporate companies and buy-in from government and buy-in from local councils and policy that there is so much lip service going on, so many tick boxes that I was just shocked, like horribly shocked, you know, that a company, we, we've been asked, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to name drop, but, you know, we got asked for, for by a, a massive beverage company. And um, they said, look, we love what you're doing. We want to sponsor you guys. We want to do this. And, you know, their turnover was actually, it's, you're talking over the 10 billion pound turnover, right? And they literally said, you know, I said, look, we've got 33 sites. I said, we're a charity. Like, I, I think you can actually change companies from within. You can change companies by working with them. I'm not here to greenwash. I'm not here to bluewash. I won't accept money. I can't be bought, you know, for someone else's agenda. But if a company is generally interested in changing, we will work with them. You know, it's not about just offsetting and things like that. It's about insetting. It's about reducing in their own company first. So they need to inset before we're even going to consider offsetting whether that's a carbon or plastic or whatever it may be and you know this this company said to us you know we're going to give you the you know sponsorship that you know will blow your mind blah 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 and I'm, I said you know look I'm I'm really I'm not interested in that I'm interested in impact how many lives can we change how much plastic can we remove and you know considering this is a billion pound company they then turned around and offered me 1500 pounds well I'm not I, I am not joking I have the email and I will never show it to anyone I'm not that person but I like, call them out that's no that, I'm, that's I'm not shocking. here 1500 pounds right and I said to them I literally said and this was I'm talking higher up on their their board and I said are you having a laugh are you, is this an actual joke and I said that you know minimum sponsorship we'd go for is one percent, right? And I'm talking that one percent was in the hundreds of millions of pounds, right? And I said if you was put one percent of your your profits into us, we then would work together with you over the next ten years, and we would massively reduce how much you're polluting, and you would have to commit to reducing, reducing, changing materials, doing all these things. And they turn around and said, oh, I mean. You know, other companies like are happy for our sponsorship, and I just said, "You've you've really barked up the wrong tree here." And I just, and you know, and I, I was quite vocal. And I said, "Please don't contact me again." I said, "It's embarrassing." Um, you know, fifteen hundred pounds from a billion pound company, and I just walked away, going, "I genuinely now understand that you know, big corporate don't care. They, you know, it's this thing that they generally don't actually care. They just wanted a logo." 
on our tops at 33 sites. And I just said, you have got to be kidding. I am not the person. I said, go to another conservation organization that will take your money. I was like, unfortunately, I'm not going to do it. And actually, fortunately, I don't need to do it. You know, I self-funded this mission from myself so I couldn't be bought. That was the idea that I will only work with people that aligns. We're controversial. We will work with a lot of people. You know, I'm not here to be cast in chains. You know, so many organizations go, you know what, we won't do this. You know, we won't work with that country because of this policy or that policy. And it's like, why would you let the environment suffer due to politics? Why would you let the environment suffer due to the source of something, right? You know, and it's, we really started saying, look, we'll work with, you know, we work with law firms, we work in the super yacht industry, you know, we're working with airlines, things like that, you know, but we only work with companies that will do an actual commitment to the planet, to the environment that are genuinely looking to change. Because like anyone we work with, we work with people that use, you know, plastic bottles on a daily basis, you know, inner city communities, drinking, you know, wherever it may be, you know, an energy drink or this. And then it's about working with people, educating people, and then causing that systematic change. You know, throughout our chapters, you know, we we, we quantified one of our chapters, Eurasian Leicester, in our volunteers, we've had over, I think, 1200 people come out with us right throughout the city and we quantified every single time how much plastic have you reduced now in your daily life you know when you go get a takeaway or when you do this or have you got yourself a reusable water bottle and we worked out you know it's nearly a million pieces of plastic we've reduced that this chapter would have used you know through the volunteers at some point in the in their year a million pieces of plastic in one chapter I mean, that's phenomenal. That's, you know, commitment. And all it is, is by changing to a reusable water bottle, buying fruit without the packaging, just these little things, we've managed to reduce that. And that's what we want. We want systematic change. We want community-based change. We want changes in, you know, whether it's cultural, whether it's social class, whatever it may be, there can be affordable, sustainable changes. But on the top end, on big corporate, We've just been really horrified at some some of the companies that genuinely there is just ESG CSR is a tick box exercise. And after COVID as well, the drive for sustainability has just slowed down. You know, we speak to 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 their sustainability team, which is a HR manager, right? So it's like when GDPR came out, they just go, you are now sustainable manager. <laughs> it's like and, you know, we we get companies asking us, can you please give us some training? Can you do pretty much probably what you yourselves do? And I, and I refer them to other people and say, I'm not the person to train you. I mean, I'm probably the most unqualified person to do that, right? I pick litter. I am like the world's most glorified litter picker <laughs> in, in general. And I'm happy for that title. Um, but yeah, it's it's just that actually this this world of sustainability is full of paradoxes. It's profit over purpose. And, you know, it's hard to get people when people are trying to make profit. And I think what's sad is that the business doesn't see that the business opportunity in if they made that change, it would be even bigger for them. That actually sustainability and social responsibility doesn't necessarily have to say, oh, you know, like shut your doors and reduce, reduce, reduce means you're never going to earn any money. Um, And I'm always having that conversation with people that look, if you if you turn what you're doing into good and you do focus on reduction, 
more business will come and you will succeed and more people will want to support you because you're doing good. And it just, I, I, I hear that all the time, the green wash, the blue wash, you know, also speak to heads of sustainability that maybe come from HR or operations and been given yeah. a job and just come to us and like, we don't even know what a carbon footprint is. So, you know, it's, it, it is so clear that there is this over the last few years ESG has been thrown around sustainability has been thrown around and the amount of companies that are greenwashing and now actually getting caught doing it which um you know I, I get inspired by the companies that are holding these um companies to account and I think it's so important and I do think it's about education you know um the education that you're giving to these volunteers the the changes that they're making in their lives and actually when we do our training sessions we go in to see people at the start you know we ask them what sustainability means to them and it, it by the time we get to the end they're like wow can't believe it completely <laughs> changed my whole mindset and they they message me months and months later and say guess what i did today and you know it's it is it's just about educating people about the changes that they can make that that you know are going to make a difference and and that's what we're here trying to do um you are a you're an everything you're a ceo a conservationist a philanthropist a diver a pilot i don't know how you fit it all in um how on earth do you juggle everything that you do um, to be honest, I'm actually, and I don't usually do this, like I said, I don't drop names or things like that. But I honestly, this is, for me, it's so important that there was an individual that came into my life. Um, and his name is Dr. Rakesh Rana. Um, he runs a, a business called the Clear, Clear Coach Consultancy. And this man came into my life and he saw my purpose, my my vision from the start before I'd done any of this. And he said to me, I really love what you're doing. I just started Vayu at the time, the actual, the, the brand, you know, my company. And he just said, he looked at me and said, I can tell life has got so much more for you. And I just went, oh, here's the sales pitch, right? And he just said to me, he goes, there's no sales pitch here. He goes, I genuinely feel... I need to just add value to your life. I need to do something for you. Um, and honestly, he then basically, I, I went on, was it 10, 10 coaching sessions with him over a three-year period during lockdown, during the things. we I've, I've actually got on a, some of my profiles, some of the pictures of me and him. So 10 occasions of us meeting, right? And this man honestly changed my life. He gave me the skill sets that actually managed for me to balance my life that you know part is for work part is for pleasure part is for family you know I'm I'm a husband I'm I'm a father I've got three children um I've actually got a newborn you know it's only four months old you know I was in Bali Indonesia bless her when she was a month and a half old literally and I'm I'm waist deep in mangroves you know one week and I'm changing nappies the next you know like Honestly, I just believe in in actually the human body and the human mind is capable of so much more when you are rested and recharged and not overworked. 
And I section my day out. I section my day out for you, Ocean, the chapters, you, Earth. I delegate. I, you know, I still wear about 10 hats. I'm not going to lie. It, you know, there are some weeks where I pull all nighters. I was working till five o'clock in the morning just on Monday. You know, I did about 18 hours straight and things like that. But then at the same time, then I, I can take a day off and I'll spend time with my families. You know, I'm actually even today, three o'clock, I'm off and taking my family out. You know, it's about balance and not thinking that, you know, I'm not, I'm here to do a good thing. It's not my job to save the entire world. It's everyone's responsibility. Um, one of the things that I always say is quite controversial and I think it's got me in a bit of hot water sometimes, but I'll say it again, because I'm happy to do that. You know, conservation should be the most selfish thing that you do. It really should. I don't care what anyone says. Don't do conservation for the next generation. Don't do conservation for your kids, things like that. Do it for yourself. You need air to breathe. You need water to drink. You need food to eat. If you are not looking after the planet for yourself, there is no point in then trying to pass that message on, right? Because everyone recently goes, the next generation are going to be the ones that save us. No, we need to start saving ourselves now, right? Because look how far that has got us. Always put in the onus on someone else. Gen Z, Gen A, Gen whatever, you know, Gen X, all of these new generations, right? No, we need to take action today. That's what I said, you know, when I was paneling the, the conference in, in Jeddah in um, Saudi Arabia with the universities, I literally just could not say enough times, research has been done. We know that plastics are damaging the ocean. We know pesticides are ruining our land and our rivers. We need to take action. Stop talking about it. You know, these big sustainability conferences are great where, you know, minds come together but without tangible outcomes, we've just had a great conversation. What's the point? You know, even us talking today, it's a great thing. It's a good thing. It's actually getting the message out there, bringing awareness, you know, to what you're doing, to what I'm doing. But we need the listeners to take action. We need them to do things that actually will change their lives, change the world beyond them, right? But it has to start with you has to start at home. Let's not hope our kids use a, re a usable water bottle, right? A reusable one. Why don't we start doing it? You know, let's hope our kids have, you know, fruit that's not in plastic packaging. No, why don't you start buying it without plastic packaging, right? It's about taking action today. And that's why I say that conservation should be the most selfish thing you do. Your lungs are only 50% of your breathing apparatus. Simple as that. Your body's created for the world. Without oxygen, your lungs don't work. So therefore, you are reliant on the planet. So therefore, if you want the planet to provide for you, you need to provide for her. Yeah. So, you know, with your experience and knowledge, and you've been now studying this for years, what do you see as we're so dependable on plastic at the moment so what 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 are the answers what can these companies do they you know what are the unconventional ideas of uh, uh, you know pepsi cola they're, they're not just going to stop using plastic bottles what more can they do what well, is this is one of the big questions and this is why you know there is no one single solution. 
And I, I always say this everywhere I go, there is not one solution that fits all because it doesn't work. It's like the educational system. One style of teaching does not work on every child. People are built differently. Companies operate differently. So I suggest to any companies that they need to take a real hard look, right? And not just do token gestures, you know, not greenwash, not blue wash, but actually reconsider their entire business model. You know, when people say, and I've heard this because I was at, you know, top of the industry in fast fashion, people say, oh, we're going to make fast fashion more sustainable. The issue is in the word itself there. You have an unsustainable concept trying to make it more sustainable. It doesn't work. So therefore, I believe there are some industries that need to go. They just need to stop because certain things can't change. If you are broken systematically from the start, that the concept of fast fashion is to buy more and more fashion quickly and cheaply, it doesn't matter whether you make that an organic fabric. It doesn't make matter whether you use a plastic bag or non-plastic bag, right? It's the broken model from the start. So I think we need to look at consumer behavior we need to look at what our company stands for and yet if it's a company like a beverage company there needs to be a big hard look in the mirror to say look it's not just about the packaging that they use it's about how supermarkets are working it's about consumer behavior are they refillable options what i need people to start thinking outside the box we can't just switch a packaging and call it like it's a great thing all the time you know people say i'll oh, switch from plastic to glass I'm sure glass has a higher carbon footprint, right, than plastic. So therefore, is glass then the best option? Maybe it's not. Maybe actually a refillable option is the best option, right? It's actually looking at the entire chain of production, from procurement to manufacturing to distribution, and saying we need to take this model and deconstruct it completely and create a new model. That's what's required in some instances that there's no chop in and chop outs. It's great that people are making these small changes and I believe in that if it gets them on that journey. But I honestly believe that we need systematic changes that, you know what, we're so easy, can go to a corner shop and just buy, you know, there's, there's thousands of plastic items in there. You know, things need to change. They just need to, whether it goes to, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, like you, you speak so much sense. It's about the circular economy. You know, we don't have the deposit return scheme anymore. We we need to be thinking, and even in a fast fashion, because I, I'm i sure that fast fashion is not gonna go away. I'm sure that um, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are not gonna go away. So they need to come up to, with solutions that, you know, that either they're giving back from, a, a large amount of the profit that they're making to stop, you know, to put these systems in place to support companies like you and really support companies like you. But as well as that, they need to find solutions of how are they going to stop their product ending up in landfill or ending up in the sea or ending up over the other side of the world. Um, I saw an amazing video actually that put a tracker on the... Oh. I saw that. <laughs> it's so cool. I think that had like millions of hits on, on YouTube, but you don't realise where this stuff goes. And I think the companies that are producing these products, they have every intention of it being recycled, recycled and put in their bin, but they have no control over that. So they need to take back that control, right? 
Yeah, 100%. It's about ownership and responsibility. It's about everyone standing there and saying, well, you know, a lot of these companies blame the consumer. Oh, it's the consumer's fault. They're not doing this. But if you weren't providing that in the first place, the consumer wouldn't have the choice but to do that, right? So it's about taking responsibility at a government level, a policy level, a company level, a consumer level. We all have a part to play. You know, we see this playing out all the time. Consumers blaming manufacturers, manufacturers blaming government, government blaming this. It's like we need to stop this blame game, right? We are past the point of blaming each other and we need to just have some affirmative actions at all levels, consumer level, manufacturing level, brand level, government level. It all needs to align because without that, once again, we're just shifting around the blame and, you know, and, and this consistent idea of, you know, it will get fixed in the future. Someone will do it. Someone said someone will do it. Someone said everyone will do it. Everyone said he will do it. You know, it's it's the ongoing saga. It's about everyone taking responsibility and everyone taking action. Uh, taking action now, you know, so um, uh, like 2050, it's too late. It's just too late. You've got to make the action happen right now. And um, taking all those groups, so the consumer, the manufacturer, the government, or the councils, what give us one tip for each group on how they can reduce their plastic or stop using plastic. Let's go through it. Um, to be honest, like like I, I mentioned before, it completely depends on what it's for. You know, take for example. The NHS, the NHS, plastic in the NHS, it saves lives every single day, right? Whether it's medicine, whether it's, you know, syringes, needles, all this kind of stuff, whatever it may be, plastic can save lives. So then using a model, for instance, to say, you know, actually, we need to put a blanket ban on this. It doesn't always work, right? So I, that's what I was, you know, I'm just trying to reiterate that it's going to be completely dependent on what that companies or what that trust is or what it may be because plastic you know has shown it's a great product like it's changed the face of our world right it's brought us to where we are all the advances has been used we you know through plastic a lot of the times but then the mismanagement of the plastic is a massive thing the overconsumption of plastic is a massive thing right so for me i'm not gonna actually i don't have the answers for you right there and that's the truth um i think every company every government needs to look right into what their specific services are or what their products are and create tangible solutions it just but it has to be with the planet in mind and it just has to be along the lines of a circular economy because we all know recycling is completely broken so recycling is not a circular economy right now it's just not working it's so funny because so many people, I did a poll actually the other week um, about recycling um, and uh, I was doing a webinar on um, plastic packaging actually and more sustainable solutions and um, everyone everyone said they recycle, by, they put their stuff in their bins. I think one person said that they don't have their recycling collected. What are the problems with recycling? Um, so recycling is the amount of different types of plastic that's being produced. Um, and this is one of the things that we've actually been working on. So our three pillars are clean up, educate and advocate. So we've actually been working with the UK government on certain things, working with members of parliament on actually standardizing plastic production. 
because the problem is, you know, you can produce now 10, 20, 30, 40 different variants of plastic and they can't be recycled or they're so, you know, rare that it doesn't work. So we need to standardize, you know, maybe five types of plastic and that's it of what can be produced. Because the problem is, is, you know, everyone puts their recycling in their bin and they think that's it. It's done. Right. I've done a good thing. You have done a good thing. Right. I'm not saying don't recycle. Recycle. It's a great thing. But after that bag gets picked up, you know, how many more dispatches documentaries do we need to see where our councils in the UK are sending the plastic abroad, being burnt on the roadsides in Turkey, being stored in a field in Poland or going straight to the to the power stations to be burned? Why am I washing out my yogurt pots for you to go and burn my plastic? Right. Let's let's take a that's you know, let's take a reality check here. There needs to be more transparent and quantifiable evidence of what happens to this plastic, because the problem is the consumer is doing the right thing. They are recycling, they're washing it out, they're doing their thing. But then once again, by the time it hits certain councils, then it's out of your control. This is where, you know, blockchain and all these things will come in, where there's a transparent chain of custody of these plastics, because, you know, Bless the average consumer and person, you know, the average person, people like you and me that generally think, you know, we're doing a good thing that we are. But as soon as it's out of our hands, landfill, burn, sent to, to different countries, sent to Africa, sent to Asia, you know, to, but then it's someone else's problem. So I think it's one of these things that actually that it just needs to be more transparent um, and people need to take a hard look into the small print understand why all of these products and all of these materials aren't just being used to build homes or cars or it's because just because honestly it's the variations that's all it is so i mean one thing that we're doing we're just starting this in india at the minute is that we're putting some river barriers in some of india's most polluted rivers and we're actually working with a factory that creates social housing out of this plastic right and actually creates building materials out of it just to keep it out of the ocean to keep it out of the rivers you know is it the best solution in the world probably not is it better than what's currently available yes because right now there's not the technology available that can actually you know do something with that plastic to break it down into non you know non-hazardous things plastic is just laced with toxic materials and that's one of the problems. So it's like, how can we do the best thing with it that's, you know, safe for, for consumer use? You know, are we putting it into roads? You know, are we putting it into housing? Are we putting it into, you know, aggregate? Like, what can we do with all of this plastic that's floating around the ocean and floating down our rivers? You know, I I, I always say we don't have the complete answer. I don't think society is at the point where we have a solution. I think we are literally in the entrepreneurial stage, right? As a society of what do we do with these waste streams? And there's some great brands out there that are doing things. Um, you know, actually we've just partnered. So today, actually, we've just launched um, a, a watch with Trua um, from the Netherlands. So Ocean and Trua have just partnered um, and they're taking ghost nets and they're taking plastic out of rivers and prevented plastics um, and putting it into their straps. You know, they're taking metal from the illegal arms trade, melting it down and making it into watches. You know, where what are we doing with these waste streams? There's great solutions out there, but they need to be scaled and they need to be thought about. 
So it's, yeah, it's, we don't have all the answers, but we're working on it, you know? I believe you're going to find it. I really do. You, you, you're so inspiring. My mind is buzzing with ideas and things. And I, I'm, I'm so, so glad that we had this opportunity to speak. Um, Two things that I want to ask. One is how can people support you? What kind of things, if a business does want to get involved, um, only if they're really serious about um, doing so and that it is in their heart and it's not just a greenwash. But what what kind of support do you need? We need financial support. That is honestly, it is cash. We have, you know, 6,000 volunteers plus. We have 33 sites. We need cash for equipment we need to put river barriers in we're reforesting the coastlines with mangroves we need to employ more people so we want companies that actually want to have a a social impact and environmental impact and actually see further than their own company you know see a global impact there's only one global ocean so by companies engaging with us we can keep these systems clean we can help recover entire ecosystems but we do that together we partner together you know this isn't just one of those thanks for your money see you later no we want to work with you we actually you know the companies that we already work with you know from RPC law firm to Cantieri Rossini, a super yacht shipyard and Ocean R in, in Ireland. These companies we work with on a weekly basis, looking at, you know, from their teams to their footprint, to how they can reduce this, how they can have a positive impact here. How can we reforest a coastline here? You know, it's about looking for real partners that are actually aligned with what we're doing. No tick boxes, no greenwashing, no blue washing, but we genuinely want good relationships and we want partners that are actively involved in the solution, not the problem. I love that. I really do. And I speak to many companies and it's why I like to give the platform to to people like you that really, really from their heart want to do good. Do the companies, if they if they do, and if it's with the right meaning and without greenwashing or blue washing, is there an offset for it? Is there is is it written? Do they get a uh you have done this and it means that your emissions have been reduced or your footprint has been reduced? Yeah, hundred percent. So we have our mangrove planting sites in Indonesia, and we also have our beach ranger teams out there. So they will get quantifiable, transparent reports on this. We call it a climate contribution because offsetting, I think, has a bad stigma attached to it, and I think companies have taken advantage of that, and even charities. So we call it a climate contribution. We show you on a GIS data map where your offsetting has occurred. You know, if you can see behind me, these are our team. This is actual people these are our workers our employees this is in-house so yeah we can quantifiably you know offset whether it's carbon or plastic footprints but we're not doing it as the tick box exercise you know we're actually putting a face to the conservation with you know their sponsorship will change lives you will meet the actual people that you are funding you know there's there's a, a real glass wall here that you can see right through yeah, that's amazing. Uh, my last question is what's next? I mean, you've shared so much of what you've got coming in the future, but you're just final. What What is happening? What's next for you? What's next is the river barrier systems across the world. We are going hard. 
So we're looking to stem the plastics in some of the biggest rivers across India and Africa and Asia. Um, so that's why we're looking for partners to actually stop the plastics and people that want to actually invest in this. Um, so yeah, the next thing is river barriers. Um, and we're just going to have U Ocean river barriers across every polluting river. We're going to be employing the communities, local communities that actually benefit that area in employment to remove the plastics. We're then going to be creating social housing and other things from the plastics that actually, once again, reinvest in that very community because it's these communities that are being affected by pollution and climate change far more than anyone else. Amazing. Chris, this has been an educational, inspiring conversation. I I'm so thrilled that we got to have this conversation. Thank you so much. I I wish you all the best and anything I can do to get your message out there. Um, I think you're you're so admirable. Uh, well done with everything you're doing. Thank you for the time. I, no, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks and have a good day. All right, you too. Bye.